0: I'm always amazed when I look at the Scripture and read it, just how human it can be. I mean, I always recognize the supernatural that was involved in the inspiration of Scripture. I believe, of course, what the Apostle Peter says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as men wrote... The pages of Scripture, they wrote, carried along as they wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit so that every letter of every word, we might say, was His product. It was superintended by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, every letter of the Bible is endued with God's veracity and His infallibility and it is therefore an inerrant product. But even though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote, we shouldn't imagine that somehow when people wrote the Scripture, they fell into some sort of trance-like state, their eyes roll back in their head, or their, their hand just sort of magically was guided across the pages with the ink, so that in some way, whatever was recorded was bypassing their own personalities, or their own will, or any of those things. In fact, when you look into the pages of Scripture, what you see is a reflection not only of the inerrant and infallible Word of God, but married together with that, you see a very clear reflection of the personalities and the desires and the inclinations and all of these things from the writers themselves. Our passage this morning in Romans chapter 15 is a great illustration of that very point. As Paul writes, and he writes, we would say, concursively together with the Holy Spirit, so everything is inspired by God, but he writes very much in these pages about his own personal desires, his own personal plans, his own personal longings as he's thinking ahead of what lays in front of him. And he's writing here, to discuss his, we might say, travel plans or his plans to come to the church of Rome somewhere down the road. It's a passage is full of statements about his, his uh, individual desires, his personal will, his personal longing, even his personal joys. And ultimately, it's a request for the, the Roman church to pray for him that these things that he's so desiring would be fulfilled. You can see that all the way down in verses 30 through 32, where Paul eventually gets to, where he says to them, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy, And be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's what Paul is aiming at. That's what he's really going to say. And everything he he really mentions or talks about up to that point is just background material. It's just just sort of filling in so that they can better understand and know how to pray for him. But in the course of this, he, he really... Unfolds for us a whole series of things that were in his mind and how he is planning to ultimately get to them by way of returning back to Jerusalem and then after ministry time in Jerusalem eventually coming to them and then by them being helped on his way ultimately to Spain. That was his plans. The interesting thing is that everything Paul lays out in here in this passage of Scripture, didn't happen. Or at least it didn't happen the way Paul wanted it to. He had this masterful plan he had thought through, he had invested in for years. And it never played out the way that he wanted to. It's probably not because the Romans didn't pray for him. And it's not because it wasn't a good plan. It's just that sometimes in your planning, the providence of God is at work bringing about different things, better things, for His glory. And it it reveals to us much. I mean, it, it shows us a number of good lessons just in that, in the fact that we have to always, of course, be open to the providence of God and however He's leading and whatever we're doing in the fact that we are given here a glimpse uh, inside of the mind of a godly minister in terms of how he goes about approaching his ministry and how he goes about planning for his ministry, we have some insight in that. And even the recognition that although this didn't work out exactly as Paul intended it to work out, he did eventually make it to Rome. And he did eventually, we're told by church tradition, Uh, be helped on his way by Rome into Spain. There was, in other words, a persistence with his godly goals to fulfill, to carry out everything the Lord had laid on his heart. In the meantime, what we are given here is just the plans. The initial plans, the initial desires of the Apostle Paul and his appeal to this church to join with him, to strive and to... Pray that the Lord would work in this way to bring it about. And trusting, and probably the key phrase in all of this is all the way down in verse 30, 32, when he says, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy. He, he, he intended to go to Jerusalem, maybe spend a little time there, hop on a boat, go straight to Rome. As it turns out, he went to Jerusalem, he was arrested by the Romans, he was thrown in jail uh, first briefly in Jerusalem, then down in Caesarea for a number of years, and then he was eventually shipped off to Rome for a number of years, and then eventually released, and we understand made it on his way to Spain. So the Lord got him there, just in a different pathway. But we have instruction here, just to just to look at this passage, from within Paul's own mind, the way he was thinking about ministry, the way he was wanting to lay it out, and and I think what we have here, in spite of all that eventually happened, we, we have here insights, if you will, into Paul's overall approach to ministry. Five features, I think, really that kind of clarify why he was such an effective and, and uh, useful instrument in the eyes of the Lord. He discusses in throughout this passage clear priorities that drove him, the careful planning that had uh, gone into everything he was doing. He talks about the we might say the collective provisions that were going to be necessary to, to pull it all off, the close partnerships that he wanted to forge along the way, and ultimately, as we said, the committed prayer that he's asking for them to give on his behalf. So I want to take some time just to run through these this morning in a, a brief fashion to think through these features of what an effective godly ministry and uh, effective godly missionary looks like. First of all, take note, if you will, in verses 22 through 23, one of the first features of Paul's ministry approach would be, we might say, his clear priorities. He had clear priorities in his ministry. He says in verse 22, this is the reason why I've been so often hindered from coming to you. Well, what's the reason? Well, what he just said back in verses 19 through 21, we looked at last week, He was busy preaching Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, basically covering from Jerusalem all the way over to Albania and even up to the coast of Croatia, all of that coast along the Adriatic Sea. He says he was engaged in ministry in those areas, and that was hindering him from coming to do what he had longed to do, what he had desired to do for so long, which was to be with the Roman church what he says. I desired to do this. He goes on in verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, he says, this has been on my heart. This has been on my mind. This has been something I've been yearning to do for many years, many years. I mean, I don't know about you, but I I don't have many things that I plan for many years. And you can imagine as you think about something over the course of time, it just churns and churns and churns inside of you. It can be difficult to remain patient in those things. But Paul says he's been thinking about this, wanting to come see them. We might ask ourselves, well, if that's the case, what in the world would have kept him from doing it? What in the world would have kept someone from doing something they had desired for so long to do? What would have prevented them from just going out and doing what was on their heart to do? Well, the answer is priorities. There were priorities in his life. Certain things that he understood would cause him to put on hold other desires, even good desires, Godly desires, ministry desires, desires to go out and actually make an impact and do something good. He recognized there were all kinds of wonderful things he could be doing, but he also recognized that within the scope of what the Lord had placed in his stewardship, there were certain things that had to take precedent and other things which wouldn't. And that required him to make discriminating choices between what is good and what is best. And so he says, Look, I, I had these certain priorities. I had to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, lest I build on someone's foundation. That's what he describes back in verse 20 as his ambition. That was his ambition, or we might say that was his, his, his priority. He longed for, he believed with all of his heart that that was what the Lord had placed on, on his plate, had put within his scope of ministry. And what that meant for Paul was that he had to say no to many good things, even other ministry opportunities. And in this case, even saying no to the idea of visiting the Roman church, maybe even no to the idea of going on to Spain for a while. All because he understood that there were certain priorities or what he said were ambitions that were to keep his focus at the present time. You know, I, I've noticed this through the years. How many people have difficulty with this? They they have the ability. Uh, you might say they're very excitable. They can get excited about all kinds of ministry all the time and they just sort of bounce from here to there to there and they're they're, they're uh, sitting in front of you or standing in front of you this month or this year talking about this thing and they kind of go out there and they get uh, busy with it and then the next time you see them, they're on to something else. And they just sort of bounce from here to there to there to there. And they don't understand this this. Reality that every effective servant of the Lord must at times make discriminating choices between certain things in ministry, certain things in service to the Lord. He has to form, we might say, spiritual ambitions and spiritual priorities. Those things which have a remarkable ability to give you unity and focus and meaning and purpose in your life. By preventing you from doing a thousand other good things that you might like to do, many of them which would even be fruitful. But ultimately, Paul understood it wouldn't advance his priorities, which were, or which was the preaching of the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. But Paul says, look, so now. I've done this. I I no longer have any room for work in these regions. You say, how in the world could you say? I mean, literally, it says I don't have any place to work in these areas anymore. How in the world could you say I don't have any? I mean, that's a 1,400 mile. That's like between here and Denver. How could you say, well, I took a trip to Denver. I preached the gospel. There's nowhere else to preach. I mean we can just think of all of the villages and all of the little places along the road and we can think of all of the dialects and subdialects and and little corners of creation where where Paul hadn't certainly not gone in the course of the last I don't know 6 or 7 years of walking around the the Mediterranean. How could Paul say there's literally no longer any place for him In these regions, or how could he say back in verse 20 that he had fully proclaimed the gospel? Well, you remember what we said last week that Paul understood his ministry philosophy, understood his missiological philosophy, understood what it meant to be successful in these areas was to establish strong, vibrant churches in central cities within that region. Paul understood that if he had gone out and made it his aim to uh, establish a church in every little valley and on every little mountaintop, he would have literally exhausted his efforts and, and probably not been able to say that he had fully preached the gospel in all these areas, but he understood that the most effective way for him to do evangelism, the most effective way for him to do evangelism was not to personally take the gospel to every person or every village or even every language group. He understood the way for him to do this was by the planting and the building up of churches in key cities from which the gospel could emanate out in all of those ways. Key, we might say, population centers or key areas of major commerce. Places where the villagers themselves would come for education or for work or for trade or whatever it might be. And so Paul basically traveled along. If you you could go get a map of the Roman roads, there weren't many of them. were just two or three major east-west routes, the Via Triana Nova, the Via Ignatia, and these were the roads along which Paul preached. And these were the cities where he established churches. And these were even the places where we see him writing letters later on. And he would go along these places, these major venues, planting churches. Which then became gospel centers. People sometimes ask uh, us, what is your missions philosophy and I I always tell them well it's very easy it's the church that's our missions philosophy it's the church just plant churches go out and establish churches and strengthen churches you you put churches in key areas, and then you strengthen those churches, and those churches begin to influence all around them. Those places where they are accessible, where they are influential, like the church at Thessalonica. Paul says, "The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you into Macedonia and all Achaia." So, so this. This church in Thessalonica on a key travel route began to influence or spread its influence throughout all the surrounding regions and Paul could look back on that ministry and say, I preached the gospel there and fully completed the work the Lord had given to me. He would, of course, leave behind key leaders in those areas, Timothy and Titus and Epaphroditus and Silvanus. He mentions them in his books. He would plant the churches. He would install good leaders continue to stay in touch with them, even train them up, but he would install them and give them the task of training other leaders, planting other churches. So Paul didn't feel a sense of need to go into all the remote areas along the way. It was still a massive undertaking, though. It still required a tremendous focus. He couldn't be scattered if he really wanted to do this work and, and carry out this effort with any kind of effectiveness, it meant that he had to hone in on what he was doing there. He had to really focus on what he was doing there. How many times ministries, present ministries suffer because in our minds we get too busy thinking down the road to something else. Paul had priorities. Now the time has come, he says. I felt like I've hit all of the main places. And he says, there's no more place for me in these regions. And since I've longed to come to you for many years, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Which really brings us to the second feature of Paul's ministry approach. And that was his careful planning. In verses 23 and 24, he talks about this. He introduces it here. He wants to come see them. He wants to be helped by them on his way, on his journey to Spain. And he introduces this idea here. But then in verse 25, he gives, if you will, kind of a detour. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem "...bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to uh, to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered it to them, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." So here's his whole plan. And Paul has thought this out. It has been in his mind. He has pursued it step by step along the way. He wants to come to them. He has been thinking for years about coming to them. But before he does that, he needs to do something else. He needs to, he says, go in the opposite direction. He was probably writing this from the city of Corinth there on the uh, Greek peninsula. So he had to go a thousand miles in the opposite direction. Now, I'm sure someone sat Paul down at some point and said, you know, Paul, you could do this more efficiently. You know, um, Rome is that way and Jerusalem is that way. So maybe there's a way to consolidate your efforts or something like that. Maybe you can have someone else uh, do this or whatever it might. Probably someone was, I'm sure, telling him, you know, there's a cheaper way to do this. There's a there's a less time consuming way to do this, but Paul, in his mind, understood that each one of these steps was necessary and needed his involvement to achieve the ultimate goal of ministry. He obviously mentions going to Spain that would uh, extend his desire to preach Christ where Christ had not been named. It was a frontier territory. It had been occupied by Rome for about 200 years, but really only in recent decades of Paul's lifetime had it really been organized and, and sort of structured where you could safely travel into the region. And so, so he wants to do that, but before he could do that, before he could take that on, he knew there were some other things that needed to happen. Most notably, he needed to take this gift, this financial gift to Jerusalem. In fact, there was a There was already in the works this collection, if you will. Paul had already been engaged in this for a number of months, maybe even more than a year, collecting this gift. And he understood that that it needed to happen in a certain sequence. So certainly there was Spain, and certainly there was Rome, and, and then there was Jerusalem. And it even involved, as he's already gotten involved here with the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. And there were multiple phases that Paul had mapped out in his mind. And each one of them needed to be implemented successfully so that he could take the step on to the next phase. And he had a sense that he couldn't just rush off. He couldn't leave any part of it unfinished. It was a massive overall project And it had to be taken on in the course of a number of years. As I said, eventually, Paul would pursue all of these things, but they would be slowed down by different hardships and different attacks and different uh, trials and different things that he went through. They would be slowed down by probably about four or five years in his planning. But he continued to press forward with the goal the evangelization of Gentiles and and the uniting together of them with the Jewish church. See, that's why he had to go. He not only wanted to evangelize the Gentiles, but he wanted to make sure that as he did that, that everything he did was always linking them back together with the birth city, you might say, the epicenter of Christianity at that point, which was Jerusalem, and the apostles themselves. He understood as well as anyone there were racial tensions that could seriously rip the church apart. He understood how damaging that would be to the church's mission if the church divided along racial lines. He understood the need to continually invest back into this so that there was no sort of split along this way. And so even as he attempted to take the gospel into new areas, he couldn't ignore the need to continually follow up, you might say, behind the lines, the front lines, working to help the church build the necessary foundations that would strengthen its ministry down the road. And in particular, this involved this offering of, of a financial assistance, he says, for the poor... In Jerusalem. I I know I've mentioned this in the past, but the Jerusalem church had a significant number of poor or destitute people. And it wasn't a result simply of demographics. It wasn't a result of the fact that the gospel was only reaching the down and outers in Jerusalem. It was a result, you might say, of pilgrimage. It began on the day of Pentecost when so many people from so many different regions of the Roman Empire, you remember Luke mentioned 17 different areas throughout the Mediterranean uh, uh, Sea there, different areas where people had come, and on the day of Pentecost, the apostles stand up and preach and we're told that 3,000 of those people came to know Christ, And so here they were, literally thousands of people, and then later on, a few chapters in, chapter 5, thousands more joined together with them. And among them, we're told, were many Hellenistic Jews, meaning they were probably from outside of the Jerusalem area. They had left their homes, they had left their possessions behind, they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover and the Pentecost feast. They were not intending to stay for a long time. Their original design was to return home after the feast. But once they heard the gospel, once they received it, the apostles realized that there were no churches to send them back to. There was no way for them to participate in the body of Christ. And so the choice was made on behalf, on the part of the leadership to encourage them to remain in Jerusalem and to do that we're told that they invited an offering from the people and people were literally selling pieces of land. They were going out there and selling tracts of land and bringing the proceeds and laying it at the apostles feet. Why? For the, for the discipleship enterprise in the early church. And so they were bringing all of this just so that these new believers could be provided for and stay in Jerusalem and be able to be discipled. Well, as you might imagine, that well eventually ran dry. I'm sure many of the people found jobs in the local economy, maybe some sort of housing, but it would have been difficult to start all over. They would have no doubt been less stable. And then on top of that, about five years in, a major persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. Many of the believers were scattered. The ones who stayed were no doubt afflicted in many ways and continued to struggle to try to stay, if you will, engaged in the work of the ministry and the discipleship. Incredible instability. And then... About five years after that in Jerusalem, during the reign of Claudius, we're told that a major famine swept across Judea and Jerusalem that lasted about four or five years. So for the first ten years of the church, they were just they were just buffeted again and again and again with these trials that were coming their way. And, and the church had given and they had given and they had sacrificed along the way for the sake of discipleship until they really ran out of resources. And so there was this crisis. It was a financial crisis, but it was a discipleship crisis. Intensified by persecution. And we might even say by providence. And see, there were poor people all over. Paul's not just concerned about poor people. He was concerned because this particular church, this influential church, which had so much work in its lap in terms of disciples was in such dire need to carry out the ministry Paul at one point you remember had even from his home church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11 been sent with a gift to the to the apostles in Jerusalem and now he's taking up another collection And for Paul, this was a spiritual as well as a material enterprise. You see in verse 25, the Macedonian and Achaean churches were pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owed it to them. So he says two things were motivating this offering. Two things were generating it. We might say delight and duty. There was a delight and a duty about this. First of all, they were pleased, he says. No one had to coerce them into this. They wanted to do this. I'm always amazed when you bring up the topic of giving, when you have some special offering, people are always in arms as if somehow you're going to strong arm from them something that they have, something they don't want to give. And I'm always trying to tell people, look, there's no obligation. We don't want you to give anything that you don't want to give. Never our desire. No one is obligated to give. God loves a cheerful giver. That's the only kind of givers we want. And when we put something in front of you, whether it's a gift for missions or a gift for the seminary or a gift for the building or whatever it is, we believe that it's a worthwhile purpose. We believe that it is something that you would be interested to hear about, but no one's ever obligated to any of those things. They're not obligations, but they're opportunities. And Paul says he put this before these believers and they were eager. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about them being in a severe test of affliction. That's what he says about the Macedonians. They were in their own time of hardship. They were in their own time of poverty, their own financial trials. And he says in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 8, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part down in verse 4, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They saw in the midst of this, they saw an opportunity they didn't want to miss out on. They, even in their poverty, they wanted to give generously. And he says they, they uh, later on in that chapter, they sowed abundantly so that they could reap abundantly. So there is this element of delight in what they were doing. That was something they were pleased to do. He says it twice. But also, you'll notice in verse 27, it was a duty. They understood that there was not only this pleasure in it, but there was this responsibility. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that is the spiritual blessings of the Jews... They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. They owed it, he says. They recognized that they had been recipients in bountiful ways already. They had been recipients of the sacrifice. They had been recipients of the suffering. They had been recipients of the blessing of this church which was originally founded in Jerusalem. They were asking themselves, uh, no doubt, why, why am I sitting here today in this church of Macedonia? Why am I enjoying the gospel? Why am I enjoying the benefits of salvation? It is because someone, somewhere along the way, made a sacrificial investment. Somewhere along the way, someone made a sacrificial move and brought the gospel to me. In the case of the Gentiles... Paul says they were sharing in spiritual blessings from these Jewish believers. That's true not only in a, you might say a practical sense, but in a spiritual sense. As he says back in Romans chapter 11, we were wild olive trees. We were just sort of not in the garden, if you will. And we were grafted into God's olive tree, which was His plan and covenants for Israel. He didn't uproot the tree, didn't do away with the tree, but somehow we were included in things like the New Covenant and the Davidic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. And then from a practical standpoint, it was Jerusalem that originally sent out the first missionaries and brought the gospel to Achaia and to Macedonia. And so Paul's implying that it'd be a mockery, it'd be an insult to sit back and to take in all of that spiritual blessing, but then not want to do anything, anything significant in terms of material response. They ought to be of service to them, he says in this way. It's fitting, it's right, that they would respond with these material gifts. All of that sort of brings us to the third feature of Paul's ministry planning, which is the need for this collective provision. He understood that with any task of the size of what he's trying to take on, you understand, he's, he's trying to plant churches in every major uh, uh, thoroughfare across the entire northern a part of the Mediterranean Sea all the way over to Spain, he understood that taking on some sort of task that massive could not be done alone. It couldn't be pulled off without the collective participation of many people. And so that includes not only this work of collecting the offering for Jerusalem and getting there to hand it off, but also a need... He needed the help of the Romans to get to Spain. Couldn't have gotten there. Couldn't have preached the gospel. Couldn't have done all this ministry were it not for their participation. And Paul expected them to do that. He expected them to be just as eager as these impoverished Macedonian believers because they understood the spiritual nature that was behind even these material enterprises. In fact, Paul uses the word, verse 26... We translated contribution. They made, they made a contribution to the saints in Jerusalem. It's actually the word koinoneon. It's the word koinonia from which we get fellowship, sometimes translated partnership. And really, both ideas are combined not only here but in the book of Philippians this idea of partnership and fellowship with the Apostle Paul in these gospel efforts. They basically funded his trips. When he was running around to certain places like uh, Cor- Corinth or whatever it may, might be so that he didn't have to ask for support from those churches because he was supported by the Philippians and by the other Macedonians. And so now Paul is saying that these churches were also fellowshipping. They were koinonia. They were coming alongside in partnership with the Jerusalem church as well for this gospel ministry, making this connection with them this contribution it was a spiritual exercise as much as it was a material exercise and he understood that and they understood that he understood that there were practical realities in the jerusalem church that needed to be carried out and they understood that it needed their support to take place but he also understood that this was a huge symbolic gesture as well it symbolized, you might say, a mutuality among the Jews and Gentiles. It symbolized that although the church was growing among the Gentiles, they were still intricately connected to the Jews. He understood that the Gentiles had received so much and now they were responding, repaying, if you will, some of those blessings. And he understood that this would be necessary for the strength of the church in the long run. So he couldn't just run off to Spain. Spain. He had to engage these two groups of people together and he wanted to be there on the spot to make sure that he accurately was representing these Gentile churches to the Jews. That was part of it. And the other part of it would be his eventual fundraising effort to journey to Spain, which he takes up in verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Helped, a significant word, it's the Greek word propempo. Propempo basically means to cover the broad expenses and needs of someone. One uh, major Greek lexicon puts it this way, to help on one's journey with food, money, arrangement for companions, means, and travel. In other words, it is, it is not just sending someone on their way. That would be a half-hearted effort. Pro-pimpo actually means to make sure that someone has all of the resources that they need to fully carry out and get to where their destination was. That's why sometimes you see it used in the New Testament of sending someone with an escort. I'm going to not only send you, but I'm going to send you with somebody who's going to make sure that you're not only sent out from us, but you're going to arrive at safely and successfully to your final destination. And so this is a full commitment to provide everything that is needed, not just a handshake and a pat on the back, but the full, necessary support, companionship, love, fellowship, and everything thought through. Paul's saying, this is what I'm asking of you. I want you to give. I want you to support. I want you to propempo me to Spain. To fully participate. To make sure that everything, every need is met. Getting all the resources to complete the task as it ought to be completed. So Paul had this plan. And it involved this collective provision. Which meant a number of stops along the way. He had already for, as I said, better part of a year been going around writing letters, gathering money for the Jerusalem church he had already started that process. It would take him probably uh, another six months before he finally got to Jerusalem. He no doubt planned to be there for some period of time, handing off that, and then he wanted to turn around and go eventually back to Rome. It would have taken him maybe a, a year and a half or better to get there, and then on into Spain, all these things he was thinking years in advance and what wound up from being a year and a half, two-year plan wound up being a six or seven-year process. But he kept pressing forward. He kept asking for this help along the way. Which I guess brings us really to a fourth feature of his ministry planning, which was his, his desire for close partnerships. Close partnerships, which isn't necessarily distinct from these financial uh, gifts but simply highlights that what Paul wanted from these churches wasn't just their funds. He wanted their love, he wanted their fellowship, he wanted their friendship, and he wanted their refreshment. He says in verse 24, I'll be helped on my way there once I have enjoyed your company. It's a word for fulfillment. Once I've been fulfilled when I'm together with you. I want to experience a fulfilling time of fellowship. He was a missionary. He went through all the trials and difficulties and sufferings that missionaries went through. In fact, many more than what most missionaries would ever experience. And when he came into a town, into a city, he needed vitally this kind of refreshment among the church. I'll never forget, and it's something that has just been, I don't know, shaped me. I will never forget going away for two years to China, coming back to my church that I had left from and been a part of for four years. Coming back to my church the first Sunday being welcomed with a visitor card. And, uh, you know, I just, I guess, jumped to the conclusion that they probably hadn't been praying for me along the way. I'm sure that there was somebody who was aware, maybe, of what I was doing, but that's not the way a missionary ought to be greeted. I love, love, love the testimony of Faith Community Church from our missionaries. One of my greatest joys is to hear our missionaries talk about this church. They talk about how much they love it. They talk about it because they mean it with genuine affection. When they are here, they are embraced. Their hearts are fulfilled. They are refreshed during their time together. They are satisfied with much-needed fellowship when they're among us. And I hope that's your perspective when our missionaries come to town. I hope that is your attitude. Not that, you know, somebody else will take care of them, but that you are going out of your way eager to snatch up as much time as you can or as little time as you can to take them on an outing or just to refresh them in any way that you can. I hope that's your desire. Because this is what missionaries need. This is what what fellow workers need. This is what Paul desired. I want your help, but more than that, I mean, I want to be refreshed. When I'm together with you, I want to be fulfilled. And he says in verse twenty nine, "I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." I'm confident about that. I've, he's never met this church, but he knows their reputation. He says, "I'm just confident that I'm with you, that that it's going to be full of the blessings of Christ." I want that kind of partnership, close, intimate fellowship. I want to feel like I'm a part of the family. Whenever I walk through the doors of your church, that's the kind of partnerships that we desire. We're not only looking for missionaries to support, we want people who are going to link their heart together with us, that we can work alongside as fellow laborers to think about our Missionaries, not just as some distant workers, but really as extensions of our own family, our own ministry overseas. And as a part of that, constantly looking for ways to refresh them. Constantly looking for ways to bless them. It's been, I don't know, 22, 23 years since I was in, on the mission field in any kind of extended way, but I still, still to this day, remember the people And the boxes of care gifts that I received. The expressions of love from friends, family. We want to refresh them. Paul wanted that. He wanted that kind of close partnership. Then finally, and quickly, a fifth feature of Paul's ministry. Really what I said he's been aiming at all along. And that is his desire for committed prayer. This is the whole point, as I said, along the way. I appeal to you, brothers... By our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, by His authority, by His power, I, I appeal to you by the love of the Holy Spirit. These are the two motivating things. By the power of Christ in prayer, by the love that you have for me, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Wrestle, fight Struggle together with me. Pray, he says. Pray I'll be delivered from unbelievers who are in Judea who would want to prevent the work that I'm doing. Pray that they wouldn't have success in doing that. And then secondly, pray that my service for Jerusalem will be acceptable to the saints. You think, well, why wouldn't it be? Because Paul understood that even within the church, there were leaders of the Jerusalem church who were going to be hostile against him. He understood that there would be key people in that church who would try to reject his influence. They would resist his leadership and try to churn the church against him because they did not want his vision of Gentile involvement. They would reject his gift. They would reject his message about the Gentile inclusion. He knew it because he had already seen it so many times. And he anticipated this friction and he said, pray for me. Pray that they would receive it. Pray that they would welcome it. Strive together with me. It's a beautiful picture, really. It isn't just some missionary who goes out there and makes all the sacrifices and does all the hard things. Paul is saying, do the hard labor together with me. I don't know if you think about that when you go to your knees in prayer every morning or every night or you bow together with your wife there in bed or with your family at at, uh, uh, your, your home devotions or whatever it might be. I don't know if you think about what you're doing as labor together with those that you are praying for on the mission field. But Paul understood it that way. He understood that when we lift up our brothers and sisters in all of those ministries, not just on the mission field, but even here locally, even those who are serving here in this church, he understood that you are bearing in a real way, you are bearing burdens together with them. There's a kind of a labor and a kind of struggle in this intercessory prayer. It's like Moses who over and over again had to go and labor and plead to the Lord on behalf of the Israelites. Or Daniel, you remember that great chapter in Daniel 9 where he goes and he pours out his his soul. Oh Lord God, the merciful God of Israel. And he prays and he labors on behalf of his people. Or even Jesus the Garden of Gethsemane, praying for his disciples with sweat drops of blood. I don't know what kind of struggle you have in prayer, but this is what Paul's asking for from, Romans, from the Romans. Labor, strive, join me. You may not have the freedom right now to uproot and go and take your family to some distant, but you can labor in the work that's going on. You know, the beautiful thing about that is when you do labor like that, when you do pray for these missionaries and these missionary families, when all that takes place, guess what happens? When they walk through the door, you're going to be the first one standing there eager to get time with them, to hear how your prayers are being answered, to know what's going on in their life, and they will be refreshed. They will be refreshed. That's how it ought to be. Paul says, pray in this way for me so that by the will of God I might come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. It's a great plan. We all make plans, right? We do our best to incorporate the kind of priorities, the kind of planning, careful planning, the kind of uh, fundraising and contribution, the kind of prayer that's necessary, the kind of close fellowship, intimate partnerships that need to be formed. We do all that stuff And then we realize that the Lord's in control, right? It doesn't stop us though. It didn't stop the Apostle Paul pressing ahead, adjusting, flexing, making his way to the ultimate goal that the gospel would go forth. And then his final benediction, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's certainly our prayer that the Lord would use us as a church, that He would use you and your ministry, that we would be bound together, knit together, labor together, pray together, give together, sacrifice together, plan together, and trust the Lord that His will be done. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. And while you're standing, I just want to say these messages that come to us they're so personal between Paul and the church. They're so personal between his his own heart with a group of people he didn't even know. But he was knit together with them because of Christ. And we hear even as we listen to it, we hear the heart of a man that we love. You might hear this this morning and that's all just gibberish to you because you don't know Christ and you don't know the church. This is a foreign environment for you. This isn't your family. Well, it can be. If you have come to recognize your lostness. You are lost. You are alienated from God. And if you have come to see that because of your sin, we want to invite you this morning to repent. To respond to the gospel. Come to Christ. He says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can have that this morning. We invite you to come once we finish with a song. We'll be around, I'll be around. I'd love to be able to share with you from the scripture how you can know the Savior and you can have purpose and you can have meaning in your life in the mission that he's given to us. Father, we are grateful for this, so thankful for the gospel, so thankful for the work that you've given to us. We do our best. We make our plans. We labor together, we pray, but we ultimately trust you. May the Lord's will be done. I pray, Father, that you would give us this kind of heart and this kind of passion, this kind of ambition, these kinds of priorities. Bring alongside of us the kind of partners, not only here within the church, but around the world, these kinds of people that we can stand alongside of, striving together for our real task and our real goal for the sake of the gospel. And may you be pleased to see fruit come from these labors.